is Eric Sorensen, church planner of Epiphany Lutheran Church in New York City, and I am back from my vacation and ready to continue our series through uh, the book of Colossians, and we are in chapter 2 today. Uh, beginning at verse 1, we're going to read to verse 5. It goes a little something like this. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. End of reading. You know, uh, sometimes when I picture the Apostle Paul uh, in my mind, I sort of picture him at a candlelit desk uh, surrounded by books or more likely scrolls, uh, pondering the deep abstractions of the world, uh, pondering all of the major philosophical problems that we still deal with today. Uh, I sort of think of Paul, I guess, a little bit like Plato uh, in my mind, uh, a little bit like a Greek philosopher. Uh, and it, indeed, it is uh, pretty clear that Paul was very intelligent and a very learned man. Uh, but when we actually look at the pages of Scripture and we look at sort of the way Paul talks about himself, uh, he's more of a <laughs> heart-on-his-sleeve pastor than he is the aloof, uh, disconnected scholar. Uh, there are so many passages in his writings where he is really going to the heart of the everyday Christian, trying to draw them to the most important things about the faith. And he does it in very earthy language and very clear language. Uh, I think of Romans 1 where he's hoping to see them and he says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. There's such a, uh, that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. There's this really relational dynamic to Paul that he doesn't get a lot of credit for. Or to the Corinthian church, when he's defending himself against those uh, quote-unquote super apostles. Um, he says this, just, just listen to how he kind of puts his heart on his sleeve here. He says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from... From other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. For the sake of the local church, Paul, this brilliant mind, has endured much and throughout his letters to them wears his heart all over his sleeve. And in the case of the Colossian church, Paul 
uh, does that today uh, and has done, did that a little bit in our previous passage too. Um, most scholars will tell you that Paul seems to be concerned about some, some unknown heresy. We're not quite sure what it was, but it was being taught in the midst of the Colossian church. As uh, almost always is the case, heresy starts from within. It doesn't really come from outside throughout history. It starts from within. And yet he says at the very beginning of our passage that he's struggling for this church against this problem with hopes for them. He says one of the reasons he struggled is that he hopes to see the church, quote, knit together in love. Uh, now the words knit together actually can mean to instruct uh, with the idea that uh, being, uh, being that a bunch of things come together to make one big thing. Uh, that makes plenty of sense. Uh, the way this knitting together happens when, uh, says the Apostle Paul, is through love. The way this knitting together happens in the church is through love. Now, what does love mean in the context of a church? Uh, he describes the actions of love in his first letter to the Corinthians. You're probably very familiar with it. You've heard it many times, usually at weddings. It goes like this. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Now, contrary to what you might have expected, that passage was not written for weddings. Was not. <laughs> It was actually written for the church. It was written to express how the church should relate to one another. Sure, I mean, we should seek to display those characteristics in our marriage. Uh, that's a good thing. But it's really focused on your relationship to the fellow members of the body of Christ who God is knitting you together with. The, the idea all over in Scripture is that there would be unity and diversity. There would be... Uh, you'd be one body, but with many members. You'd be knit together in love. And so the first question you got to ask uh, if you're seeking to apply this in your life is, uh, is that your relationship to the church? Do you swell with love that is patient and kind and does not boast and is not rude and does not uh, keep a record of wrongdoing? I'll give you a minute to think about your answer to that. Okay, now that you've had a little time to think about this, my guess is you realize that most of the time, most of us do not reflect this kind of love attitude in the church and therefore are probably not being knit together in the way that God would have us be knit together. And so the first point of application for you today is that all of us need much grace as we look at what it means to be knit together in love because we don't do this as we ought to and we can't do this as we ought to in and of our own strength. We, we, right out of the gate, we should just come to God asking for forgiveness and the cleansing power of Jesus to wash over us. Um, and we must ask that in light of uh, his empowering spirit to, to give us this ability to love people in our midst that might not feel lovable. All right, so that, that's the first thing that he sort of stresses. He wants them to be knit together in love. But the second thing um, is that Paul hopes 
that, uh, that love is not all they have. Contrary to what the Beatles said, love is not all you need. That's nonsense. Uh, this uniting love uh, leads to something, or rather I should say someone greater. The goal of this love is that we would, quote, reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now that is a mouthful, so let me try and take it piece by piece real quick. First of all, by the words used in the passage, uh, that is where we start to get the illusion that Paul is probably writing to counteract some sort of heresy in the church. Uh, there was apparently an early form of Jewish Gnosticism setting in and uh, basically that claimed to have a special knowledge. That's what the word uh, Gnosticism comes from, knowledge. Uh, and it's a knowledge from God and only an elite few can obtain it. And so they would speak much of the, the mysteries of God. What does Paul say? All that special knowledge, all the wisdom, assurance, all the mysteries, they're all fulfilled in Christ. They're all fulfilled in Christ. So the point that he wants to get us to is that as we're knit together in love, it would make us look more to Christ. Now, over the last number of years, there's been a, a real movement uh, amongst many churches to become uh, Christ-centered churches, and they will preach Christ-centered sermons. And generally speaking, I think that's a great thing. Uh, there's far too many churches in which uh, you or I are the center of the sermon, and I really don't want to hear about me or you. I come to church because I need Jesus. And uh, so I love that movement. Uh, but in response, there are critics that say, well, you know, the Bible, the Bible has a lot more than just Jesus. We shouldn't just uh, try to make Jesus fit into every text. And the response is, but Jesus said to do that. So yes, we are going to find Christ in every text. He said to do that in John 5, 39, where he said all the scriptures were about him. And when he was on the Emmaus Road with his disciples in Luke 24 after his resurrection, he opened the scriptures and showed that they were all about him. And so, yeah, Paul says, that's what I'm hoping for, that as you're knit together in love, your life becomes really all about him, that you look to him for everything that you, you need, your understanding and your knowledge and your wisdom and for the mysteries of God to be fulfilled. So, you know, I have often heard uh, well-meaning people, I've had people say this to me after preaching, you know, something to the effect of, you know, I, I, I get it, the gospel's great, get it, but, you know, we really need to move on to the meat of God's word. That's just introductory stuff. Um, and that's nonsense. Uh, the truth is, you never get past the gospel. You only dive deeper into it. Um, you know, meat is, is the gospel. Meat is Christ for us. And if meat is ever defined as something apart from Christ, then it really is just mushy uh, spiritual oatmeal. Uh, finally, as the Colossian church is knitted together in love and looking to Christ first and foremost, Paul's hope is that this will result in their ability to withstand false teaching. Now, how do they withstand this? Well, he sort of alludes to three things. By, he mentions three things. Number one, uh, he, he, we need to recognize that Christians can be deluded by false teaching. That's what he says in verse 4. That word deluded 
means uh, cheated or swindled. And the idea is if you don't know your doctrine, basic sound doctrine, uh, you don't need to know uh, dates of prophecy and that sort of thing, but you do need to know basic doctrine as is laid out in the creeds and, you know, in my case, uh, laid out in, the, in a confession. Uh, if you don't have that, then you're a sitting duck for false doctrine. And there is an awful lot of false doctrine peddlers out there. There are many false teachers on TV, not all of them, but many. Uh, there are many prosperity gospel people that are selling a bill of goods, and uh, if they don't repent, will go to hell. And all these folks, just like the rest of history, are people that have come up within the church, and they know how to twist scripture in order to sell their product, but ultimately it's done to feed their own appetites. And so Paul says, I want you to know that it's possible for you to be deluded, be on guard. Uh, why do we need to be deluded? Because it can sound plausible. He says that in verse 4. It can sound plausible. Again, um, you know, one of my teachers at Biola University, where I went to get my undergrad, uh, said, you know, Satan's greatest trick is not to sell you a totally different uh, religion a lot of the time. He's fine with you believing in Jesus as long as it's not the true Jesus. He's fine with you believing in a corrupt gospel. As long as it's not the true gospel, he's totally cool with that. So the devil has no problem with you attending a, you know, quote-unquote church uh, if they're not preaching the gospel. That's, that's fine with him. Um, and so, so heresy sounds plausible. Oftentimes backed up, it seems to be backed up with Scripture. Uh, but the more we study God's Word, the more we can find the holes in it. And uh, that seems to be... Uh, what's tripping up the Colossian church is that it sounds plausible what some of these Gnostics are saying. And Paul says, yeah, but it's not Christ. And so it's not right. And the third thing we recognize at the end is that Christians should be ready to battle uh, this. We should be ready to defend uh, the faith against uh, heretical claims within the church. So Paul says to the Colossians, in spite of the false teaching that has been infiltrating there, he says he rejoices to see their good order and the firmness of their faith in Christ. Now, uh, the reason I say that this alludes to battle is because both the words good order and firmness were two military terms that anybody in the military of the time would have recognized as military terminology. Good order was used to describe a formation an army might take, you know, straight, straight lines. And firmness was putting up a solid front, holding the line against the enemy. And so the point is for the Colossian church and for us is Paul uh, hopes that as we're knitted together in love, as we look to Christ alone, as we dig in to know what we believe and why we believe it, that we'd be able to stand strong on that doctrine and not be tossed to and fro by the waves of bad doctrine. So, so that is the devotion for today. Uh, I hope you have a great uh, next week. I hope you have a great weekend. And uh, may God richly bless you. I will see you next Friday.